Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. It is the 18th of May. Wow, that's like almost half a year has gone by. It is, gosh darn, going fast. Now, there's there are hearings today, and my bae, Christopher Ray and his people have not <laughs> disappointed at all. Now, I think we should start talking about that, but I think it's more important that we understand that this is the time for us to reclaim what is rightfully ours. We're standing at a critical junction of our nation's history, where our sovereignty has been threatened and our self-governance is slipping away. But we shall not falter because we will rise above the challenges because we're fighting back without violence, but with the power of our collective will and unity. But it is very crucial that we pause for moments of introspection and reflection. We must delve deep within ourselves and uncover our core motivation, each and every one of us. That burning fire that fuels our longing for true freedom, justice, and a just constitutional republic. For only when we know truly what drives each and every one of us, what really sets a fire in our heart, can we actually channel that energy into effective action, what some people may call purpose. We must recognize that the strength of a nation lies in the hands of its people. We are the custodians of our destiny. We are the historians and we are the ones writing history and we paint our future with an amazing brush that is powered with our power to rectify the flaws in our nation. And primarily, your eyes should be on one goal. While we're pulled in a million directions, we should be focusing on our electoral process. That is the very foundation of how we the people actually have the power and the strength of our nation in our hands. We have our ideals, history ingrained in the U.S. Constitution as American citizens. And it's a U.S. Constitution calling your name. Hey, you're the guardian of your own self-governance. It's time to actually heed that call. We should, in a unified way, have our voices echo across the nation and the world, resonating hope, determination, and resolute belief in our ability to affect change. And what we see is that's being stymied by the very people claiming to assist, pulling us in different directions due to niche, I guess. It's important that we are united in purpose transcending barriers of party, ideology, and background because our strength lies in our diversity, in our unwavering commitment to the ideals that bind us as a nation. But remember, this battle 
in this age is not fought with fists or weapons of destruction, I guess. It's fought with knowledge, with compassion, and with the unwavering belief that we can overcome any obstacle that stands in our way. We should be constantly engaging in civil discourse, amplifying the truth and challenging the status quo. We should be demanding transparency, accountability, and integrity in our electoral process. That's where we should be focusing. We should be focusing on that because everything else is garbage while all are seeking, I want blood, I want them to walk, I want them to hang, I want hearings. The bottom line is while you're putting all of that energy, save the children, this is wrong, that is wrong, they're still winning because they're still putting on a show to keep you distracted. In this time where we face adversity, we need to be remaining steadfast. We need to educate ourselves and others, spreading awareness about the importance of active participation in our communities, in our legislation. Should we be engaging in peaceful protests that are going to be violated? Probably not. We must advocate for electoral reform every single day and hold uh, these selected individuals accountable so that way we can exercise our right to vote and actually have the power in our hands. Today, if anything, I ask each and every one of you that are listening to my voice to seriously reflect and understand what your co core motivation is. And let that guide you in the face of adversity, going against the wind, walking straight into the storm and let it fuel that unwavering commitment to the future that you want. I believe all of us want the same. Now, when one thinks of core motivations, you have to understand what makes someone tick. So you're going to get lesson 101. <laughs> From one, I'll self-proclaim it. I mean, you don't have to believe it. It doesn't mean it's not true. How do you understand what makes someone tick? You realize what their core motivation is. And that, a core motivation is a fundamental driving force or desire that underlies your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. It's deep-seated in internal motivation that influences your behavior and shapes your goals and aspirations and decision-making processes. It's almost like a purpose. Core motivations can vary among all people, but they can be influenced by a combination of innate factors, personal experiences, and social influences. So here are some key points that I would take a look at when I'd have a target. See, when I had a target population, nation, or group of people, I would try to figure out what their core motivation is. And boy, the United States is not like other nations. We are a melting pot of people. We are a melting pot of core motivation. Everyone has a different motivation. So when I would examine how I could do it, 
I would look at um, how I can understand them first. To understand one's core motivation, it's, it's actually valuable for personal growth, right? Self-awareness and how you make your decisions every day. And it can help um, people align their actions together and make life choices um, with their underlying desires, leading to a more fulfilling and purposeful life. Because a lot of people are like, I need a purpose. I need this. Recognizing and respecting the core motivation of others can enhance your empathy, your understanding, and effective communication in interpersonal relationships and social interactions. So what is it? Well, one is the development and origin. So that's the first thing I look at. Core motivations often originate from like a combination of like psychological, sociocultural factors, but also biological. Some core motivations may have a strong biological basis, such as the desire for survival, reproduction, or the pursuit of pleasure. Others may stem from psychological needs, such as the need for autonomy, competence, or being relatable. And Obviously, societal and cultural factors shape core motivations by influencing your beliefs, your values, and social norms. In addition, once I've determined your origin, meaning your core, meaning, hey, is this person, you know, a, a male that was raised in the ghetto that's black, that feels oppressed, right? Everything about him is easy to hijack because I know what his motivation, his origin is. His origin stems in rage and anger of disadvantage. Boom, that's one. Then I pay attention to see the influence on one's behavior or a group or a nation. Core motivations have a significant impact on an individual's behavior. They guide decision-making processes and they shape the choices and the actions that they take in pursuit of goals and fulfillment. So once you've identified the origin or their early stages of life that you can see, stereotypical maybe, you can understand the influence on their behavior. So if one person, right, was raised in the ghetto, he's a black male, he feels oppressed, the influence on his behavior may be to be, uh, you know, in and out of jail because he thinks the world owes him something, so he's always stealing. Or it could be that they exert aggression to those that have more because they were, their origin stems from a position of lack that has been done by those that have more. See, core motivations can provide a sense of direction and purpose. And usually when one is in rage, vengeance is, uh, you know, multifaceted, but can give a very good sense of direction and purpose. Driving individuals to engage in specific activities, relationships, or endeavors that align with their underlying desires. See, this is how I assess situations. Let me continue, because that is exactly how artificial intelligence that has been programmed by people, or is a people, to be able to disseminate information correctly and alter outcomes. 
Core motivations tend to be relatively stable over time. Have you ever heard that saying, people don't change? You, you know someone that at, the, at a very young age, like from like 8, 10, 15, you know them as a very young person as they develop, and then you meet them again 20 years later, and they haven't changed, right? You know where their moral floor is, kind of like I always say about Christopher Ray. I saw a core motivator. I identified that. I honed into that. Therefore, I know what I can expect from that person because, again, those motivations tend to be relatively stable over time. So if someone in their hearts from a very young age is all about freedom, guns, beer, liberty, well, guess what? That's not going to change. If someone feels that they're oppressed just because of the color of their skin or they feel guilty because of the color of their skin or they feel minimized because of their sex, their family life, their upbringing, they feel small and unworthy, that's really hard to change because it's very stable all throughout their life over time. And that represents the enduring aspects of an individual's personality and identity. So while people can, be, can evolve and be influenced by life experiences, core motivations often remain consistent and shape a person's long-term goals and pursuits. And understanding one's core motivations can also you know, provide insights to patterns of behavior and help individuals pretty much like align their actions with their underlying values and desires. So even though someone that, I don't know, uh, was raised uh, at a young age, had like severe trauma, right? Severe trauma. And, but their core motivator was service, right? From a young age, they would always like, oh, let me help my classmate. Hey, do you need a Lego? Here you go. And, oh, I can share my, you know, my snacks with you, right? I'm just, I'm just saying, that's always going to be there. So even if life throws anything at them, their core motivator will be service. This is how one, I guess, discovers where their superpower lies because that is how one can identify their purpose. And as a nation, that's something we have lost. I mean, have you seen social media? It's like ADD on steroids, right? Everyone knows everything about anything. It's spread across the board. There's people going down the trafficking rabbit hole, the financial rabbit hole, the, 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 the Russia hoax rabbit hole, the Biden uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> and, and they're all getting a show. And today I'm going to show to you how the theater of a globalist tyranny is presented to you to pacify you, to entertain you, if you allow it. See, another thing that I have understood is that core motivations play a very crucial role on every single person's sense of well-being and fulfillment. This goes back to purpose. When individuals can identify and align their actions with their core motivations, they're more likely to experience a sense of purpose, satisfaction, and overall psychological well-being. Conversely, a misalignment between core motivation and actions can lead to frustration, dissatisfaction, and a sense of unfulfillment. So your well-being lies in the ability for you to understand what your purpose is. 
so that you can understand it. And I'm going to tell you this secret. Every single person's purpose lies within truth. Now, while people have multiple core motivations, because they do, that inter, they, that, well, each multiple, um, each multiple core motivation that a person has interacts and influences each other. For example, someone may be driven by a combination of the desire for achievement, affiliation, and personal growth. These core motivations can coexist and sometimes conflict with each other, leading to complex dynamics of an individual's decision-making process. This is how I would assess a nation. And I can provide to you my assessment. If I wanted to hijack the United States, I can tell you exactly how I do it. And I'm going to show that to you today. See, there is a misconception that we can reinvent society. No, no, wait. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase that correctly. Many of you out there want to reset society. You want to press the reset button and say, let's start all over again. Okay, that's, that's what everybody wants. Let's just reset this, ground zero. Let's start all over again, blank slate. Let's go, let's start it over. But that's not true. The only thing you can do is reinvent. You're on a path heading to the future. You are not able to go backwards. The idea of resetting things is insane because reinventing is what you need because we need continuity and historical context in order to Evolve. Society is built on a complex web of interconnected structures, traditions, and historical developments. And as you see, when tyranny is encroaching, when your sovereignty as a nation and as a people is being encroached on, they try to delete it all. They want to reset it all. (laughs) You know. They can't be known that we had electricity here 300 years ago. Let's just wipe the slate clean. We can't tell them this has happened before. Let's wipe that clean. Hey, we can't have accurate transcripts that are considered historical religious texts. Wipe that clean. Hey, we need to burn the Library of Alexandria down and ban books. Wipe that clean. No, that can't happen. Because our future is shaped by the actions and decisions of previous generations. And its current state is a result of a cumulative process. You are here. See, years ago, when I walked into Starbucks, I saw these mugs. And the first time I saw it was I was in Portland, actually. There were mugs overseas that I would collect. I have like the collection of the you are here of every nation that I've been to that I was able to buy a Starbucks mug with the country's name, right? I think they started to do them in like, I want to say like 2004, um, where I saw it in London. And then I picked one up in Austria um, after that. What I loved about it, it said, you are here. And every time I look at that mug, right, when I drink my coffee in the morning and I look at a you are here mug that I've collected or that someone gave me, right? I think, damn, where was I when I got this mug? I was there. Meaning every single mistake, 
you know, everything I did in my life, every single good deed, bad deed, mistake brought me here. It brought me here. Now, can I go back and change it? Maybe I'm, I can flex like that. <laughs> but until that's actually, that would be a sad life, right? If you can. It's really sad because then you're doomed to keep repeating it again and again. But anyway, recognizing that this continuity helps us understand ourselves, then you can understand that this continuity helps us understand the societal transformation does not occur from isolation. It builds upon and responds to existing foundations. In addition, evolutionary change is something that happens. This is how we create a future, not by resetting society, but reinventing it. Societies evolve over time. And they adapt to new circumstances, challenges, and aspirations. How many times have I said over the years, hey, you know, it used to be a cool thing to grab a box of popcorn and go to the square and see someone get disemboweled. We don't do that anymore. I don't think any of us would go do it. No matter how much we hate the person, we would not be able to stomach that because we have evolved. People continuously innovate and reimagine social, political, and economic systems to meet changing needs and values. Hence the era of AI. You've been in it for a very long time, yet most of you fear it as you should because the roads to hell are paved with good intentions. So rather than resetting a society, the focus should be on transforming and refining existing elements, institutions, and practices to create that positive change. Societal change can occur through reform and revolution. And here we are. Reforms involve making incremental adjustments or improvements within an existing system, such as changing laws, policies, or actual institutions. A revolution, on the other hand, involves more fundamental and systemic changes, challenging and replacing existing structures. Please understand that both reform and revolution are ways that one can reinvent society while acknowledging the historical context and working within the existing framework. As I said, you're on a grass field with set goalposts and ice skates with an ice hockey puck. You can only reform the field that you are in. You cannot change the goalposts or the way the game is played until you do that. And the way it happened is that people have the power to initiate and drive societal change through, through collective action. The cyber communities that have been created over the past two decades in cyberspace have created a distance between human beings to make it more difficult to drive societal change through collective action. This is why I would strongly encourage always that people meet offline, potluck, break bread together, talk. Because social movements, grassroots initiatives, and community organizing provide the avenues for individuals to actually come together, identify issues in their community, and work towards solutions. 
And these are the movements that can challenge existing power dynamics and advocate for new ideas and values and introduce alternative models that can you know, shape and reinvent the aspects of society that we want. And this is done through innovation and creativity and critical thinking. All those things are completely necessary and crucial in reinventing society. By questioning established norms and exploring new possibilities and pushing bounds and getting uncomfortable, getting outside of our comfort zone, envisioning alternative futures, individuals can actually challenge the status quo and propose innovative approaches to social, economic, and political problems that are with the times. New technologies, new ideas, and new cultural expressions can reshape societal structures and practices. And this is a double-edged sword. Because we have to remember it's 2023, it's not, not 1980, it's not 1990, it's not the year 2000, it's not 2010, it's not 2014, it's not 2016, it's not 2018, it's 2023. What worked yesterday does not work today because you are here. One thing that I remember pondering on when I was working on the Ukraine in 2014 to rig their elections and capture them completely. Well, they were already captured. We just needed the people to be on board, okay? I, I recognize something that's almost poetic, and it's, I think it's the, the core of all of this. Society is actually a product of collective wisdom, knowledge, and experience passed down from one generation to the next. If you can target that society, that civilization, that demographic, that group, that nation, and hone into that collective wisdom, knowledge, and experience that has been passed down through generations. Suddenly, they're your marionettes. Because intergenerational dialogue facilitates the exchange of ideas. And if you can intercept that, you can influence the exchange of ideas, perspectives, and lessons learned, fostering a continuous cycle of reinvention on your terms. That's how you can hijack it. That's what I'm actually great at. But we can actually amplify that and allow for this integration of new visions and the evolution of societal values and norms over time for our benefits. It's important to note that reinventing society is, it requires engagement, collective action, and inclusivity. We can't have people holding up the Bible and excluding people because they don't agree. We can't have people holding up the Quran and excluding others because they disagree. We can't have people saying, you're white, you can't talk. You're black, you can't talk. You are disadvantaged, you can't talk. You identify as a Democrat, you can't talk. It involves listening to diverse voices, addressing their, I guess, I don't want to say inequalities, but their own core motivators and actively involving yourself in that process. So by embracing the concept of reinvention rather than a complete reset, which is what they want, because a reset deletes. Remember that. When you reset things, you delete things. And if you delete things, then you being here doesn't even matter. Every single individual, every single community in our nation can take agency and actually actively shape the future of their society. 
in order to be able to break out of a, a regime that uses psychological operations, right? You have to work with two types of people. The critical thinkers or what you would say, the, the, the oh, perfectionist, high achievers, and then the creatives. And I've told you about that. And it's important to understand that because an encroaching tyrannical regime employs various strategies to exhaust its citizens and discourage them from overthrowing their regime. And the tactics that they use are the same ones I've implemented and indeed that are implemented today. And I guess that's this, this is where my frustration stems from with influencers because it's, um, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Do you know how, how an encroaching tyrannical regime may employ these strategies? Let me give you six of them. Surveillance and control. Our regime right now has expanded surveillance capabilities over the past few decades. They monitor communication channels and employ advanced technologies to track citizens' activities to suppress alleged dissent. And they do. This, is, this, this actual constant surveillance can create like a climate of self-censorship and discourage individuals from organizing or expressing their opposition. Another way they do it is by economic control and dependency. Hey, let's make them all broke. Let's take their money. Let's introduce a new monetary system. And they can't do anything because while they're busy trying to put that fire out where we're telling them what to do, look, look at the train wreck, America. We're taking your money and you're going to have social credit. You're focusing on that train when you can have the barrier built to make it crash. And that's the electoral process. The regime may exert control over the economy, restricting access to resources, employment opportunities, and essential services. And they have been doing that. By creating economic dependence or implementing policies that disappropriately, disproportionately, I would say, and disappropriately, right, impact certain groups, the regime can manipulate the population's livelihoods and create a sense of resignation or dependency. This regime is also using the co-optation and token reforms, huh? Right? Aren't they? They're employing token reforms or offer limited concessions to give the appearance of responsiveness and reform, dying on fake hills with fake swords. By making minor adjustments or symbolic gestures, like hearings, the regime aims to appease the population without addressing the fundamental issues or systemic flaws that led to their grievances in the first place. <laughs> co-optation. They divide and conquer, and we've seen this. They have sowed division within our population, exploiting uh, existing fault lines be based on like religion, ethnicity, color of skin, socioeconomic status, or political affiliation. By fueling these conflicts or promoting identity politics, they seek to divert attention from its own actions and weaken a unified opposition. And of course... They use propaganda and censorship because that's how you can control and manipulate the flow of information through state-controlled media, censorship, and propaganda, right? And by shaping the narrative and disseminating false or misleading information and stifling dissenting voices, the regime aims to control the public perception and limit access to alternative viewpoints. And if you have been paying attention, 
More of the censorship is coming from our own camp that claim that they are to move it along and we need to win than anywhere else. I can give a few examples. What's that guy? Um, I'm going to throw him under the bus again. I really don't give a shit. Patel Patriot. So you know why he calls himself Patel Patriot? Because he apparently is shilling for Cash Patel, so he calls himself that. But do you know that in his, you know, little regime, because you know I lived in North Dakota, so I'm just going to point this out, just making it clear. I have a lot of friends there. Do you know that the rule of thumb for his network is you can't mention Tory Says? So that tells you right there that we have opposition. That there's censorship within your own camp. And I, and, I, and I say this and I dare anyone to challenge me because that's on the record. So when you see the people in your own camp pushing forward for censorship, you know they're not in your camp. It's message over messenger. You may not like who's speaking, but that's exactly what censorship is. You silence those you don't like. It's not what they say. So, you know, what was his name? John Hedron, right? That's the guy that I'm talking about that, you know, shills for Cash Patel. I love Cash, okay? And I think Cash loves him some Tory too. But I'm, this is just one example, like Tracy Beans, Brian Cates. How are they in your camp when they're silencing truth? How are they in your camp? I'm pointing this out because I am the damn expert. I've hijacked nations across this planet. You may not believe it, and that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm here giving one of the longest confessions. You know, confessions in the intelligence community are the worst thing because you can't put the genie back in the bottle, and that exposes things. So, you know, they can't run interference easy. It would have been better if I just off myself in December of 2018 and it didn't work. And this is what they bring in. Repression and fear. So when the people of your own camp are engaging in active censorship, and that is fact, I, I do not want to hear any, anyone telling me, no, I can just drop all of that, but I don't. You know why? Because a lot of people have kids and families. I'm not shitty like them. <laughs> I would never censor anyone. I even share all the good information they put out. Pay attention. It's an insurgency against our own camp. And once you figure that out, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. They are not your friends. They're there to make money. They don't have a purpose other than a title or a tiara because they're stifling information. That's the problem. That is how you see who is there. And that is how repression happens, which amplifies violence and intimidation. And this is what such regimes do. They instill fear in the population. They want to dominate and they want to be, but here it is. You are here now, like that Starbucks mug. You are here now. While this tyrannical regime is creating a climate of fear that discourages citizens from taking action, we have people in our own camp doing the same. It's unacceptable. And they have succeeded in exhausting you. And I'm here to tell you this, we are winning so hard. And, and I've said this before for years. You can't connect the dots for us. I'm sorry. I wish I can let you in into those six inches between my ears.
but you will be able to connect them backwards. And you can see each and every one of you have done so much over the past years, over the past decade, small things. You know, if you can't do big things, if you can't do great things, do small things in a great way. You got you to gotta think big. And the only way you win is with knowledge because my people will perish without knowledge. You know, to overthrow and to advocate the overthrow and to overthrow a government, it's usually associated with violence, suffering, loss of life, and long-lasting instability. Right now, what we are doing is reinventing. But we are finding more opposition within our own ranks than we are outside. We are not getting pushback from the left. I, if all of you can see that, you are not getting pushback from the left. The left has nothing to push back on. Nothing. They have no leg to stand on. The pushback you're getting is from your own camp. Your own camp. I want you guys to understand that. Allow me to show you a clip. A clip that actually I felt really, really bad for Mr. Friend. And the reason is because I've been through exactly what he did. When I was under political attack, my medical records were released and people were posting pictures of me getting chemotherapy online and laughing at me and saying, I hope she dies. They, own, they leaked that information. They also leaked sealed indictments, sealed confessions, right? Where I was actually victim and so was my family. To shame and humiliate I want you guys to hear what he said because he went through the same thing. And I said this to those that are very close to me over the years. I've said, if they're doing it to me, they're going to do it to you. And President Trump even said, if they're doing it to me, they're going to do it to you. And if they're doing it to one of their own, they're going to do it to you. Listen to his testimony. Thank you, Chairman Jorman and members of the committee. My name is Stephen Friend. I'm a senior fellow for the Center for Renewing America. Prior to assuming my current position, I was a special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation for eight and a half years. During that time, I investigated approximately 200 violent crimes, such as aggravated assaults, murder, child abuse, rape, robbery, child molestation, child pornography, and human trafficking. I also served five years on an FBI SWAT team and spent five years as a local law enforcement officer in the state of Georgia. In August 2022, I made protected whistleblower disclosures to my immediate supervisor, assistant special agents in charge, and special agent in charge about my concerns regarding January 6 investigations assigned to my office. I believed our departures from case management rules established in the FBI's domestic investigations and operations guide could have undermined potentially righteous prosecutions and may have been part of an effort to inflate the FBI's statistics on domestic extremism. I also voiced concerns that the FBI's use of SWAT and large-scale arrest operations to apprehend suspects who were accused of nonviolent crimes and misdemeanors represented by counsel and who pledged to cooperate with the federal authorities in the event of criminal charges created an unnecessary risk to FBI personnel and public safety. At each level of my chain of command, leadership cautioned that despite my exemplary work performance, whistleblowing placed my otherwise bright future with the FBI at risk. Special agents take an oath to protect the U.S. Constitution. The dangers of federal law enforcement overreach were hammered home to me when I was required to attend trainings at the Holocaust Memorial Museum and MLK Memorial. 
I cited my oath and training in my conversations with my FBI supervisors. Nevertheless, the FBI weaponized the security clearance processes to facilitate my removal from active duty within one month of my disclosures. In addition to an indefinite unpaid suspension, the FBI initiated a campaign of humiliation and intimidation to punish and pressure me to resign. In Humiliation. They love to humiliate you. They will sit there and they will narrate. And then they will have their own bot networks that everyone keeps telling you, oh, the left has bot networks. <laughs> the right has worse ones. I can call them by their name. I could tell you who they are. I've already said there's no off ramps. It's game over. And this is, so yesterday I was feeling really frisky because when I see communications come by, you know, I, I'm, I'm more of the principal, like, why are you doing this? This is causing more harm than good. You know, I see people encroaching into, you know, movements and, and, and people running for office trying to destroy them because they want their ideologies out there. I've told you many, 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 many times over, there are people in the CIA that are good people. I, I'll buy most of us are fucking psychopaths and sociopaths because, you know, especially <laughs> legit spies, right? Not analysts. But there are good people. Mr. Friend is one, and there are many, many more. But this is where your Congress is giving you crumbs. Look at this. Listen to what he tells you. They humiliated him and tried to force him out. They did that. Pence did that to me. Pence kicked it off. The attacks on me began with Pence. And they were relentless. They violated their own laws against me. I'm telling you from personal experience, not just what you're going to hear from Mr. Friend. And what you've seen they've done to President Trump. So you've seen little old me who's a nobody. Mr. Friend, who's a somebody in the FBI. And President Trump, who's a global somebody. So if they can do it to all three of their groups, their own, a global somebody, and a silent nobody, imagine what they can do to you. And here's the thing. They have hijacked the minds of the American people to draw them through into these rabbit holes of discussion rather than actions and results. And like Mike Lindell has been abused from day one. This man makes his own money. He's like a boss. And yet we have people selling him ideas that never work, selling him information that is unnecessary inspire him to go down directions that he doesn't have to. They prey on the people whose core motivations they understand. Like Michael Lindell used to be an addict. He reinvented himself for better. And that's what he wants to do now. He wants to reinvent the nation for better. And he's putting his whole life on the line and all you have is people sucking at his teat with bullshit. I want you to listen to what Mr. Friend, one of their own, thank you, Chris. He's my bae. Uh, <laughs> I know his core motivations. I speak from that experience. Remember what they did to Julian Assange? Rape, rape, and it was fake Yet on a global scale, they humiliated him. And look where he is. And you all know how I feel about Edward Snowden. He kind of went in there, did it. 
I kind of didn't like the fact that he knew and did and what, and it felt like a tango where he was on the burnt side. And now he's like, damn, dance with the devil. You've got to be a devil to be able to dance. And if you're never that evil, Ed got burned. You know, he got burned because he danced with the devil. Only devils can dance with devils. <laughs> if you ever try to attempt to tangle with one, you're definitely going to get burned. You better be fire. And you better be, what, how, how did Don McDonald say? <laughs> Dipped in Teflon, <laughs> walking with open sandal, drinking gasoline. What he's about to say is, uh, for me, the most important thing that should resonate to every American. What he has been saying is, please, listen to him. Violation of HIPAA, individuals at the FBI leaked my private medical information to a reporter at the New York Times. In violation of the Privacy Act, the FBI refused to furnish my training records for several months. To date, they only provide a portion of the records, which are essential to obtaining private investigator and firearms licenses in the state of Florida. Even after releasing some of the records, the FBI refuses to confirm their legitimacy to the Florida Department of Agriculture, rendering the few documents they have provided practically useless. The FBI denied my request to seek outside employment in an obvious attempt to deprive me of the ability to support my family. Finally, the FBI Inspection Division imposed an illegal gag order in an attempt to prevent me from communicating with my family and attorneys. Working as an FBI special agent was my dream job. My whistleblowing was apolitical and in the spirit of upholding my oath. Nonetheless, the FBI cynically elected to close ranks and attack the messenger. The FBI is incentivized to work against the American people and in dire need of drastic reform, particularly in these areas. The integrated program management system incentivizes the use of inappropriate investigatory processes and tools to achieve arbitrary statistical accomplishments. Mission creep within the national security branch has refocused counterterrorism from legitimate foreign actors to political opponents within our borders. The FBI weaponizes process crimes and reinterprets laws to initiate pretextual prosecutions and persecute its political enemies. Bureau intelligence analysis capability increasingly dictates operations, turning the FBI into an intelligence agency with a law enforcement capability. FBI That was key. Remember when they were talking about the 17 intelligence agencies and they added the FBI and I said the FBI is not an intelligence agency because it's law enforcement. So now you have an intelligence agency that has law enforcement powers that is not capable of being audited. No checks and balances. That's where we have the problem. That's where we have the problem. Listen, Tim, say the FBI is now an intelligence agency with law enforcement powers. That's huge. And that goes back to what I was reporting on. Executive Order 12333. How many times have I talked about that over the years? We have the ability to make change. We're just not focusing on things that will bring down the house. It's like Jenga, man. Why are we picking the easy pieces? Let's take the big one and take them down. That's the problem. We have too much opposition in our, in our camp to even do that. Our borders. The FBI weaponizes process crimes and reinterprets laws to initiate pretextual prosecutions and persecute its political enemies. Bureau intelligence analysis capability increasingly dictates operations, turning the FBI into an intelligence agency with a law enforcement capability. FBI collusion with big tech to gather intelligence on Americans, censor political speech, and target citizens for malicious prosecution. 
A dysfunctional promotion process fosters a revolving door of inexperienced, ambitious FBI supervisors ascending the management ladder within the agency. FBI informant protocols that are broken and abusive. The FBI skirts the Whistleblower Protection Act and exploits the security clearance revocation process to expel employees who make legally protected disclosures. I am pleased to see the Weaponization Committee is taking testimony from FBI whistleblowers. I would also like to take this opportunity to address correspondence recently received by the subcommittee. Yesterday, May 17, 2023, FBI Acting Assistant Director Christopher Dunham submitted a letter to this subcommittee. Portions of his letter concern the suspension and revocation of my security clearance. Parenthetically, I also received a letter from the FBI Ex Executive Assistant Director Jennifer Moore yesterday notifying me that my security clearance was revoked. I find the timing of these letters dubious, but leave that up to the subcommittee's determination. Instead, I would like to address the, and add vital context to the portion of Mr. Dunham's letter pertaining to my alleged violation of Adjudicative Guideline J. Mr. Dunham is referring to an audio recording I created of my August 23, 2022 meeting with Jacksonville Assistant Special Agents in Charge Colt Markovsky and Sean Ryan. After making protective whistleblower disclosures to my immediate supervisor in August 19, 2022, ASAC Markovsky summoned me to a meeting at the FBI Jacksonville office. ASAC Markovsky told me the meeting was intended to be an opportunity to discuss my concerns. I anticipated the meeting might ultimately lead to my executive managers attempting to compel me to participate in an activity which placed public safety at risk. I was concerned ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan may threaten adverse actions toward my career, a result of my whistleblower disclosure. Prior to the meeting, I consulted Florida law to confirm that a law enforcement exemption exists for state two-party consent restriction. I decided to record the meeting to memorialize our discussion and my concerns about the FBI's misconduct. When I entered the FBI Jacksonville office building, ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan were having a private meeting. I waited for them in a conference room. When they entered, all of us placed our cellular phones on the conference table. As an experienced investigator who has conducted hundreds of recorded interviews, I noted how both ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan repeated themselves throughout our discussion and continually insisted I agree to their premise that I was insubordinate and refusing to perform my job. I rebuffed each allegation and repeated that I believed I was fulfilling my oath of office. By making my disclosure about the FBI's rule of departures and the inappropriate risk to public safety via aggressive arrest tactics for January 6th subjects. It was my sincere belief that my ASACs were also recording our conversations. In January 2023, I participated in an interview with the FBI Security Division. During that interview, I was asked if I recorded my August 23, 2022 meeting with ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan. I answered honestly that I had. Although it would seem to be an obvious and natural follow-up, the FBI Security Division interviewers did not request a copy of the recording. FBI Security Division should be gravely concerned if executive managers threaten subordinate whistleblowers with adverse action. I submitted that this omission by the FBI Security Division solidifies my contention that ASACs, Markovsky, and Ryan created their own recording of our meeting. The FBI was not concerned about potential whistleblower retaliation. The Bureau was only interested in learning if these actions were at risk of exposure. I pray that all members consider the information I and my fellow whistleblowers present. You may think I'm a political partisan, you may think I am a grifter. You may think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It does not matter. Simply put, this committee should avoid te the temptation to impugn the character and the motivations of the messengers seated before you. 
I sacrifice my dream job to share this information with the American people. I humbly ask all the members to do your jobs and consider the merit of what I have presented. Message over messenger. Isn't that what he said? You can consider me a grifter. You can consider me a conspiracy theorist. You don't even have to believe anything I say, even though I'm always right. But you should see the merit of what's being stated. He said the same thing I've been saying every single day. Obviously, because he wears the title of a former FBI agent. Mr. Friend is more widely accepted by your counterinsurgency within your own ranks which is pretty much fueled by self-preservation. Everyone is feeding the alligator, hoping that it will eat them last. I will replay what he just said in his closing statement. I have said this so many times. Trust no one. Don't even trust me. I never say trust me. Have you ever heard me say trust me? I do not say that. Because trust is earned. It is not something that you can dictate or state. And he's saying the same thing. Just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not true. That's the way it is. Message over messenger. And when you see your own people, turn them off. Stop listening to them. Because they are not there to help you. They are there to capture you. That's is what he is even saying. Listen again to the closing statements. Security Division solidifies my contention that ASACS, Murkowski, and Ryan created their own recording of our meeting. The FBI was not concerned about potential whistleblower retaliation. The Bureau was only interested in learning if these actions were at risk of exposure. I pray that all members consider the information I and my fellow whistleblowers present. You may think I'm a political partisan. You may think I am a grifter. You may think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It does not matter. Simply put, this committee should avoid te the temptation to impugn the character and the motivations of the messengers seated before you. I sacrifice my dream job to share this information with the American people. I humbly ask all the members to do your jobs and consider the merit of what I have presented. Thank you. He sacrificed his career. I'm no one. So you should trust no one. No, you shouldn't trust anyone, even nobody, even someone you don't know, even those that are hiding behind fake ass handles and they're talking shit about people. Bitch, put your face on it. Put your life out there. Show me your kids. Tell me who you are. Show me how amazing you are. That's how you discern. Show me your life. That FBI agent's life has been put out from start to finish gutted out there in the open with his pants down completely naked. And yet there are many people targeting him. Same thing with president Trump. He's butt naked to the whole world. They've exploited every corner that they can. And yet there's people still mocking. How many other Patriots have been mocked, mocked, mocked when they're, Faces, their names, their actual selves are on the line, yet we have anonymous people posturing against them. Discernment, oh, that's, that's something that, that many lack. You know, when, when, when I get confronted with questions about the FBI, 
And Ray, you know one thing that I learned in my career <laughs> uh, about clandestine activities or spies? Because this is a spy war. You're just not seeing it. Right? Is going back to Sun Tzu's art of war. There are different spies. There are surviving spies, doom spies, and local spies. Let's just put them in three categories. The surviving spies are also known the surviving agents or living spies. They're individuals that actually infiltrate the enemy's territory and remain covert for a very extended period of time. They blend in with the enemy. They adopt to their customs, language, and behavior to avoid detection. They work with them. These spies, well, they gather intelligence over a long Duration. They build trust and rapport with the enemy's ranks, and their aim is to provide ongoing, accurate information that can be crucial for planning military strategies and gaining an advantage. Local spies are also known as internal spies or close-in spies, right? They're people that operate within the enemy's territory or organization. They have direct access to valuable information due to their proximity to the enemy. And these spies can be recruited from the local population or even from within the enemy's ranks. And what they do is gather intelligence and observe the enemy's activities and provide critical insights to their intentions, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. But Christopher Ray, doomed spies, they're referred to as expendable spies or sacrificial spies. They're individuals who are intentionally sent to be captured by the enemy at some point. Their purpose is to mislead the enemy intentionally and feed them false information and play their game, creating some form of confusion and deception, but along their lines. Doom spies are typically selected for their ability to deceive the enemy, I guess as their capture is anticipated. By sacrificing themselves, they contribute to the larger strategy of deceiving and manipulating the enemy's perception. Sacrificial lambs. That is how you must trust that your gut can guide you to the correct, I guess, summary of things. Allow me to demonstrate how the use of theater is a means to pacify the population. Even though it's a winning shot and you understand the winning process, you still see that it's lights, camera, action. Thank you, Chairman Jordan, for your leadership. The FBI has been victimized by political capture, and that politicization has manifested in the targeting of Americans who never deserve to have this government weaponized against them. Whistleblowers saw those bad acts. They stepped forward and they were retaliated against and crushed as a consequence. And our work today will build on the work of Special Counsel Durham, who said recently that at the FBI there is confirmation bias and overwillingness to rely on information from individuals connected to political opponents and action without appropriate objectivity. Uh, there, uh, one of the whistleblowers we'll hear from today served in the United States Marine Corps, served as a local cop, Garrett O'Boyle, and uh, this is uh, his testimony regarding that political capture. 
do you believe that the FBI has become political? I do. I think most people out in the field um, try to avoid that politicization of, of the agency, which, I, which is good, but it's gotten to a point, it seems to me, that uh, it's, 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 it's like a cancerous point where the FBI has let itself become enveloped in this politicization and weaponization that I don't know how uh, to, to even begin to, to fix it. One group that saw that weaponization work against them were Catholics. The FBI field office in Richmond put out a memo saying that violent extremists would find the Catholic ideology attractive and would attempt to connect with Catholic adherents, that extremists uh, would show an interest in Catholic congregations over the next 12 to 24 months leading up to the presidential election. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? And the memo calls for the FBI to develop sources within Catholic congregations uh, to try to obtain information about those folks. Another group that saw weaponization turn against them, parents who attended school board meetings. Uh, you'll hear today from Steve Friend, who worked for the FBI and actually found himself ridiculed at his own FBI office because he, too, was a parent who attended a school board meeting. This is Steve Friend. Given your law enforcement background, does knowing that you could be investigated by the FBI for speaking up at your child's school board meeting chill parents from exercising their First Amendment rights? Yes. And you said you had attended a school board meeting and you were nervous that you could be under federal investigation. Is that correct? Yes, my colleagues teased me about it. Americans who were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th who committed no crimes, who simply attended a rally, also saw the FBI weaponized against them. George Hill was an FBI employee working out of the Boston field office, and he talks about the pressure that the Washington field office was putting on Boston, and when they tried to get predicate evidence, they couldn't get it for a very interesting reason. This is George Hill. Joe Bonavolante said, no, we're not opening up cases on people who went to a rally. And I forgot a part. The SSA for CT2 said, happy to do it, show us where they were inside the Capitol, and we'll look into it. To which WFO said, we can't show you those videos unless you can tell us the exact time and place those individuals were inside the Capitol. To which the SSA responded back, and I was privy to these conversations firsthand, why can't you show us, why can't you just send us, that give us access to the 11,000 hours of video this incident failed? Because there may be, may be, UCs, undercover officers, or CHS's confidential human, or confidential human sources on those videos whose identity we need to protect. Marcus Allen, an FBI analyst who did work around evidence, sharing it with folks, he saw videos that concerned him about the federal government's own involvement in January 6th. Here's Marcus Allen video to me indicated uh, uh, potential problems uh, with the uh, investigation as far as informants uh, were concerned and uh, our organization's uh, potential forthrightness about utilization of informants there on that day that might have some impact on our cases um, and the, you know, the subjects that we're looking up and just a general awareness overall for the investigation as a whole, that there might have been some kind of 
so much of the good work happening at the FBI is throughout this country, and a lot of the rot the committee has learned emerges out of headquarters and out of the Washington field office. Garrett O'Boyle described the conflict that existed as the Washington field office put pressure on other field offices around the country to engage in law enforcement work without predication. This is Mr. O'Boyle. Did the WFO pressure other field offices to keep numerous cases open or open cases? I would say they pressured, um, pressured us to open cases uh, to some degree. Um, one example that I have personally, I, I made this, this is one of my protective disclosures, so I'll just touch on it a little bit. But um, I received a lead about someone based on an anonymous tip and in law enforcement anonymous tips don't hold very much weight especially without evidence that you can corroborate uh, pretty easily i wasn't able to corroborate anything they said um, even after speaking with uh, the person they allege potential criminal behavior of well i'm trying to figure all that out i get another lead from the same agent who sent me that lead and um Trying to get people to break the law without sufficient predication is a weaponization of our government. And all Americans suffer when resources are misallocated, when stats are padded following 9-11. The FBI set up all of these terrorism entities to look outward at people abroad who might seek to harm our country. But a lot of those authorities were turned inward against our own people, and the result was stat padding for the purpose of FBI officials trying to convince Congress that the violent extremism threat was more enhanced than it indeed was. And we got critical testimony on that point also from Mr. O'Boyle. As a DT agent, I encountered similar um, stat padding or case bolstering. Truth be told, it was one case. Like, but the FBI had me open up four different cases um, because they had me open a case for every individual that I had a um, articulable factual basis that there may have been um, potential federal law being violated. Or like on a criminal case, say you're working like a gang, which is, this case was, I guess, like a militia. Um, if you're working like a gang, you have a case open on a gang and you have a subfile for each person in it. Like, John Doe 1, 2, and 3, they would all have their own subfile. Or in my case, John Doe 1, 2, 3, and 4 all had their own separate case because then the FBI could, from my perspective, <coughs> the FBI could come back to Congress and say, look at all the domestic terrorism we've investigated. But really, I was working one case. But the FBI can then say, well, he actually had four. So we, you know, we should give us more money because look at how big of a threat all this domestic terrorism is. Padding the stats to try to showcase a problem that is overemphasized, political capture and political infection of our law enforcement. These brave patriots spoke up about it. They'll be testifying to our committee today, and my colleagues will now discuss some of the intense and depraved retaliation that they had to experience. And I'd recognize my colleague from Florida, Kat Kamick, to share some of those thoughts with us. We have to agree that for some reason, Matt Gates looked extremely attractive today. So the theater is not being posed by him. See, when you're putting on a show, you have to have a ringmaster. That 
kind of shows like he's going with the show, but he's literally trying to just give a show. Ah, let me elaborate. So Matt Gates, great guy, says a lot of great things. And he's actually moving along. Let me explain to you the role of Christopher Ray. Maybe that'll help because I've put a person in a box like this many times somewhere in time. He's in a leadership position. And right now, what you're seeing is that he's stagnant and shrugging off the consequences as his organization has been weaponized and influenced, and he knows it. And there are various reasons, and it's important to understand that these are all potential reasons and motivations that vary, obviously, depending on the specific circumstances of Christopher Ray. I like handing out cardboard. But when you know someone's core motivation, then you can understand. At this moment, Christopher Ray has lost confidence in his ability to address the issue effectively. And I'm pretty sure he feels helpless in the face of powerful external forces that are coming down on him. One, it's his overlords. I've said this from the beginning. The Hunter Biden laptop was never about Biden. It was about Obama and the fourth unelected branch of government. Durham's report <laughs> is not about Russia. It's about Obama and the fourth unelected branch of government. Ray right now believes that any attempts to combat the weaponization and influence in the FBI is futile. And I've seen him do the same before. Because that would result in personal failure and further harm to the organization. But hey, Chris, you can always be my bae. Because lacking, the lack of accountability and consequences is another reason that he feels that he can't act with impunity due to the lack of such. And therefore seeks no reason to actually take action. This could be due to the weak regulatory framework that we obviously see at the FBI and a lack of oversight and a culture of impunity within the organization, but greatest, I say, greater society of the United States. And he understands that he was complicit with the weaponization and influence benefiting himself from the situation in some way. And that would involve corrupt practices, uh, personal connections that they prioritize over the well-being of the FBI itself or its stakeholders. <laughs> and in such cases, Christopher Ray may be choosing to maintain the status quo to protect his own interests or those of his allies, which leads into fear and self-preservation. Because fear of reprisals or negative consequences take action against the weaponization and influence of the FBI. He may be prioritizing his personal safety and reputation over confronting the issue, opting to maintain the status quo, to avoid any backlash or harm that may come their way. I'm pretty sure that all of us would be, hey, Ray, you get a free carte blanche. Step it up. Don't be in denial because that's what it looks like he's in. He may be completely unaware to the extent of the weaponization because he's at the top and the influence that's being peddled within the organization. I mean, he can't even deny the existence. Let's stop. One thing that I've learned is people within the intelligence community, they self-destruct. And 
And this is by being disconnected and grounded in reality or intentionally turning a blind eye to the situation. It's like throwing your toys under the bed to clean up your room really quickly. That's complacency, ignorance, and a deliberate attempt to protect their own interests. And you can't blame them. We see that every day, all day, within our own vicinity. It's entrapment. I love handing out cardboard. But then you could say he could have self-reported. I mean, where is he going to self-report to? I had that same problem. Where do you report to? You don't. You don't. You just play the role of the surviving spy and wait, right? Wait for the time where you can have a decade of confession. In the intelligence community, self-reporting refers to, you know, the act of us, of, of, of individuals within the IC or organizations that are considered part of the IC, voluntary providing information about their own activities, capabilities, or intentions. Self-reporting occurs in various contexts and for different purposes, right? It can have both positive and ne negative implications, you know. Oops, pillow talk. Oops, I did this. And there are positive aspects to self-reporting. It can be a means for an organization like the FBI to comply with legal or regulatory requirements. Certain industries and, and, well, I guess vertical agencies within our nation may have reporting obligations related to specific activities, such as uh, financial transactions, right, where you self-report how much money you have, where you get it, your investments, right, exports or sensitive technologies. Self-reporting enables such institutions to meet the obligations and allows authorities to verify compliance. And it also increases transparency and trust building, right? Because it can foster uh, transparency and help build trust between the different intelligence agencies and reporting entities, each operating decentralized to themselves, of course. But by openly sharing information, organizations demonstrate their commitment to working together, right? And provide insights that can assist in assessing threats, risks, or vulnerabilities that they have within their own agencies, and that leads to cooperation because if you can self-report, it uh, indicates cooperation and willingness to share information together and understand where the deficiencies are. So that way, each and every one of them can self-support each other and boost each other for a common goal, such as national security or upholding the U.S. Constitution. So when individuals within such organizations or institutions themselves proactively provide information and self-check, it facilitates collaboration and therefore enhances intelligence gathering and analysis to make the world a better place, of course. But there are also negative instances. Self-reported information may not always be independently verifiable. And unfortunately, you know, in the IC, we, we often have the need to corroborate or validate information provided from other sources um, to ensure that it's accurate and reliable. It's also, you know, obviously may provide a complete or unbiased picture when you self-report, but it's also the other side because individuals and institutions may selectively report information that serves their interests or omit details that could be incriminating. Therefore, every member of the IC and law enforcement, federal law enforcement, needs to be aware of the potential biases and, and critically evaluate self-reported information in conjunction with other sources. But also, you know, when you self-report, it can also be a deceptive tactic. 
to provide uh, false or misleading information to misdirect intelligence activities or divert attention from their actual activities. And that can hinder and misdirect actual threat assessments and intelligence analyses. I've said this before. There are people that, let's, let's pretend we're on the street right now and some woman's being beaten up by a group of men. And you stand there because you're like, yo, I'm just one dude. Like, I'm not getting in the middle of that. They'll knock my teeth out. She's being blundered. They're using skateboards. I'm going to get hurt. So you're a bystander. You're worse than the people actually beating up the woman. But bystanders sometimes can play a very crucial role. Bystanders, bystanders <laughs> have other standards, meaning they could simply be there to allow things to happen. And they are doomed and they know it, but their role is to simply allow things to happen. By allowing things to happen, you are allowing a story to unfold and be told and be showcased. And that's basically how you win. By, sometimes you just have to show them. You can't tell them. And no matter how many times we say this, not many people understand it. We have to show you. We can't tell you. 